0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Matthew chapter 24. We're looking at verses 15 through 28. Matthew 24, 15 through 28. This is part of the Olivet Discourse of our Lord Jesus, called that, because He gave this uh, on the Mount of Olives, there across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. The temple would have been in plain sight, and he's speaking to his disciples. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might understand wonderful things from your word. for We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We owe a debt of gratitude to Jesus' disciples whose questions prompted these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You recall uh, earlier in chapter 24, as Jesus and his disciples are, disciples are leaving the temple area, that the, the disciples comment on the magnificence, on the beauty of the temple and its surrounding precincts. And Jesus uh, says, well, I tell you, there will not be left one stone on top of another. And they've made their way out, perhaps heading back to, uh, to Bethany. And they're on the Mount of Olives. And they have a plain view of the temple. And the disciples ask Jesus in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And... The rest of chapter 24 and 25 are an answer to those questions. Now, as we discussed last time, as you may know, chapter 24 has uh, no small share of difficulties for us as we try to understand it today because it can be difficult to separate out which parts of what Jesus is saying answers which question. In other words, what has to do with what Jesus said, when will these things be, when will the temple be destroyed, uh, what answers that question versus what is Jesus saying that answers the question, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? There are a lot of different schools of thought. Uh, the, whole, the dispensational school of thought uh, takes chapter 24 in and, and, and one direction and looks at it certain ways. Uh, among other evangelicals, there's other, there are differences here about which of these verses, which of these passages have to do with which. I would suggest to you that uh, while we certainly want to try to get the details straight, certainly generally we understand what Jesus is saying. And I would also say that sometimes I'm not sure that separating the two is necessarily that important, because I think that what happened leading up to and including the destruction of the, Jerusalem, of the city of Jerusalem is itself Uh, something of a foreshadowing of what will happen at the close of history when Jesus returns in glory. Now, we looked last week at verses uh, 1 through 14, where Jesus gives some general warnings to his disciples against some dangers that they would face, certainly in their own lifetimes, but same dangers that we have faced ever since up to the present day as Christians. He warns them against false teachers not to be led astray. He warns them not to panic over calamities that take place in the world. He also warns them that they will, in fact, face persecution. But they respond to that persecution by enduring. And that very endurance is uh, evidence of their genuine salvation. And they respond to persecution by recognizing that even then, and perhaps especially then, The gospel must go forward. The church does not lose its missionary nature. As Jesus says in verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, today, as we look at verses 15 through 28, we're looking at a passage that, at least in the first part of it, very definitely applies to Jerusalem and to the events leading up to its destruction in the year 70. That would be some 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. Here, Jesus is answering the question, when? When will these things happen? And you'll notice here that Jesus doesn't give them a particular date. He doesn't say, well, it'll be this many more years. But he gives them something to look out for. Something that will kind of be a landmark indicating to them that the fulfillment of Jesus' words will soon occur. And in fact, he describes here four events that they needed to be aware of and be mindful of. And as we look at these things, um, because this is God's word, while it certainly speaks to very specific historical events that took place a long time ago, it still has something to teach us today. And I want us to look not only at these events Jesus is talking about and the things that happened, but also what we can learn from them as we live for him today. So first of all, the first event that Jesus speaks of here is the uh, infamous abomination of desolation. Uh, What is that? What is this all about? Look at verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Well he's referring to something here that Daniel spoke of. He very plainly says that. This is something spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Which, as we said, Daniel refers to this some four times. And in fact, the reference in chapter eleven in Daniel in Daniel very clearly refers to something that had already taken place by this time, and that is the defiling of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. In the year 168 BC, where the temple was taken, an altar to Zeus was erected over the altar of burnt offerings, and there offered on this altar to Zeus were pigs. And you can imagine Jewish reaction to pigs at all, let alone pigs being offered up as a sacrifice in the very temple. Of the Lord. That was a defiling, that was a desecration of the temple that had already taken place by this time and was prophesied by Daniel. But Jesus takes that and refers back to that and says, Let the reader understand, referring there to Daniel, that just as there had been that fulfillment 168 plus years before Jesus said these words that there will come another fulfillment of that, uh, perhaps even even more vile, even more desecrating. And it's difficult to know uh, exactly what it is here that Jesus is referring to. Uh, very often the common conception of this defiling of the temple had to do, has to do with the idea of Roman soldiers coming in and setting up the Roman standards, there in the temple precincts and uh, by their presence, Gentiles, and by setting up their images of Rome, defiling the temple. Well, that certainly uh, would defile the temple, but that really doesn't help Jesus' disciples. Uh, because by that point, by the time Romans actually inhabited the city of Jerusalem, actually occupied the temple area, it was too late to flee. Uh, Jesus' point, as we'll see, is to flee before the advancing Roman armies while there is still time to get out of Dodge, so to speak. So while that certainly was a defilement of the temple, it seems that he is referring to something that would take place before that point, before the Romans actually were in the city, that would be the clue to the Christians that it's time to leave. Now, we don't know exactly what that was, and there's speculation about different events that might have taken place, but we don't know what that is. But we do know this lesson that we can draw from this, and that is that our trials are under God's sovereign hand. This whole passage is speaking about something, as we'll see, that was horrible in the extreme. And Jesus said it would happen. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm going to do my best to keep it from happening. He said, no, this is what's going to happen. Uh, It was prophesied by Daniel, fulfilled in part uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes. It will be fulfilled in, as we know now, the year 70. uh, And the year and the few years uh, prior to that, uh, when the Romans would finally come in and take The city. Do we recognize that? I mean, the Bible speaks of the difficulties, not always in detail, sometimes generally, but the fact that God has ordained these events of our lives. And scriptures speak of Him writing out the pages of the book of our lives before one of those pages is yet to occur. We need to recognize that life in this fallen world is nevertheless life under the sovereign hand of God, and He's speaking of uh, here not just of something physically difficult but spiritually revolting to the Jews and yet it's in God's word yet it is under God's sovereign control now that's the first event that Jesus speaks of here this this incident that will defile the temple Jesus says and apparently it's one of those things where you'll know it when it occurs is the sign That destruction is soon to come. And that leads into the second event Jesus speaks of. And that is this flight from Jerusalem to get out of Jerusalem. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Then, when you see that, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus says when you see these things happening, this abomination of desolation, then you need to leave. And you need to leave in a hurry. In fact, uh, verse 16, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. is almost reminiscent of God's instruction to Lot to flee Sodom. Get out. Because the judgment is coming and it's coming quickly. I don't know if that's intentional or not. I don't know if Matthew... Uh, as he wrote those words, thought, you know, that sounds a lot like what happened to Lot. Nevertheless, there is a similarity there. You know, judgment is coming. When these things start to happen, it's time to flee. It is time to run, uh to head for the hills. Literally, flee to the mountains. Um, there was actually an event recorded by the ancient church historian Eusebius. Uh, he, he describes this. These are, his, these are his words. He says, Moreover, the people of the church at Jerusalem, in, in accordance with a certain oracle that was vouchsafed by way of revelation to approved men there, had been commanded to depart from the city before the war and to inhabit a certain city of Perea. They called it Pella. Now, Pella's in the foothills. It's not really in the mountains, and we don't know uh if if how how closely this correlates with what Jesus said. But certainly Eusebius, writing some years after the events, seemed to see this this flight out of Jerusalem taking place in response to, obviously reference to the words Jesus gave to his disciples here, to approved men, as Eusebius puts it. Uh, and so that may well describe at least part of a, a response to what Jesus says here. When you see these things happening, get out of town, flee. And not just flee, but do it quickly. Notice the urgency that we see here. Verse 17, let the one on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Now, their housetops were typically flat. They often served as another room of the house. Essentially, in the cool of the evening, they would sometimes get out of the house, go up on the top to relax, to be outdoors. Uh, kind of functioned as, as porches uh, do today, or used to do more perhaps than they do Now, in the days of air conditioning, but people would go out on their porches just to get out and outside a hot house into the cool of the evening. Well, they would do that, go up on the roofs. And uh, Jesus said, don't even go back down to the house. It is so urgent. You just need to flee. And in fact, Josephus, the first century uh, Jewish historian, Uh, indicates that people sometimes, not in times of panic or or haste, but just to get around, would sometimes go from rooftop to rooftop just so they didn't have to go down on the street. And uh, that seems almost to be what Jesus has in mind here. Don't even go back downstairs. Just go from housetop to housetop until you get out of the city. You get to the wall and you go out of the city. Uh, likewise, not just someone relaxing on the rooftop, but someone working in the fields. Verse 18, let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. You get word of these things happening, you don't go back home to get your cloak, you know, or if you left it at the edge of the field so you could do your work, you just go. Just go. To get away. Apparently, between the defiling of the temple and the closing of the roads and the avenues of escape, so to speak, there would not be much time. And then again, uh, verse 18, again, the the cloak, don't turn back to take your cloak. Well, what do we learn from this, this flight from Jerusalem? Well, we learn this. It is perfectly okay, it is absolutely acceptable for Christians to flee persecution. Christians don't go out looking for persecution. That's a difference with Christian martyrs as opposed to, say, those who die in the name of Islam. They don't go looking to die. It may come. We should be willing to endure that if it comes to that. But it's also perfectly okay to flee danger, to try to get away. We don't look for it. I I remember um, when I was in seminary, missions professor, Dr. Paul Long, served in South America, served in Africa, Uh, tough guy. It uh, does a book of uh, stories he wrote called "The Man in the Leather Hat" and other stories. Great missionary stories. Uh, great stories to read to your children. "The Man in the Leather Hat." Uh, I remember Doctor Long telling us that uh, you know he, he faced some times of danger. He always had his rifle with him. He told us, "I, I don't have the gift of martyrdom," and he carried his <laughs> he carried his rifle with him. Uh, He would have much rather uh, shared the gospel with someone than a bullet with someone, but he was willing to defend himself and his family. If it came to that, he wasn't looking to become a martyr, but he was willing to if God should decree that. Uh, We endure it if necessary, but it's also okay to flee it if possible. And that's what Jesus says here. He He doesn't say just stay in the city and take it, you know, die gloriously. He says get out. As Christians, we're not looking for martyrdom. We accept it if need be. We accept suffering for the name of Christ if need be, but we don't go looking for it. And if possible, we do try to avoid it. And so we learn that from this, the instructions Jesus gave to flee Jerusalem. But he also speaks in that same context about intense suffering. The urgency to flee. Why? Because of the intensity of the suffering. Look at verse 19. And alas... For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, in those days, obviously, women who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants, will have a much uh, more difficult time trying to get out of the city, dealing with the uh, the the exigencies of the moment. Uh, It would be very hard for them. Jesus goes on to add in verse twenty-one or verse twenty rather, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath why not?, well, why not winter? We think cold, but that really wasn't the problem, so much as it was rain, when the uh, the wadis, the, the seasonal streams would be filled with water, when the roads would be muddy, when rain itself would just make traveling harder, or the Sabbath, why the Sabbath? Well, because uh, even among these Christians themselves, uh, there may have been those who had scruples about traveling farther than was, say, by the Pharisees permitted on the Sabbath. Or even if they had no such scruples, there would be others who could help them who may otherwise not be willing to help them because it is the Sabbath. Uh, It would just make it more difficult for them to, to get out of town. And Jesus says in verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, Jesus says there's going to be terrible suffering. And there was. And If you, if you read about the siege of Jerusalem, uh, it, it's, it is hideous. The kind of suffering, disease, deprivation, death, hunger, Hunger to the point that mothers were eating their children. That is how horrible the situation was. Uh, many, many died because of violence. Many, many died because of disease. Now we think, well, you know, even with the Jews, some, what, six million died under the Nazis? What about the 20 million or so who died under Stalin? Stalin. Well, certainly grander numbers than took place in Jerusalem. But in terms of sheer suffering and in terms of the decimation, of, of in terms of the percentage of an entire city that died or was enslaved, Jesus is right. There, is no, there, has been, there has not been suffering of that magnitude since. And in fact, it's interesting, as it's written in Greek, there are three negatives that go into that final statement. The ESV tries to capture it a little bit by throwing that extra no in. There, will, there has not been such from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. There are three negatives piled up there to emphasize the unique nature of suffering that would take place in the fall of Jerusalem and in its destruction. But notice what Jesus says. Let's go back a verse to verse 20. It's easy to miss what he says here. Talking about pregnant women, nursing mothers, the difficulty they would have. Notice what Jesus says. Pray that your flight may not be in winter. He doesn't just say there it will be. He says pray that it won't be. And so looking at this, certainly one instruction here for us is, is to pray about these things. To pray in the face of suffering that God would show mercy. That it would not be as bad as it might otherwise could possibly be. And also notice uh, in verse 22, God's fatherly care. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So lesson for today, don't be caught off guard by the intensity of some trials that God may call even his own people to go through. But we turn to him for help. Believers, not just in the first century, but in the centuries since up to the present day, have suffered terribly. And it's tempting to go back and say, why, God? Why do you let your people suffer this way? But for some reason, in his providence, he does. He says, flee it if you can, get away. Nevertheless, there are Christians who have not been able to escape and who have suffered terribly. Outside God's providence? No. Within his providence. But Jesus reminds us in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, with verse 22, we come to something interesting. There are scholars who would argue that verse 22, Jesus resumes where he left off in 14, talking more generally, talking more with an eye to what would be experienced in all times, kind of having talked specifically about particular suffering that would take place with Jerusalem, but now going back and looking at What Christians would endure certainly then, but also in the ages since up to the present day. There are a couple of reasons they would argue this. It's easy to look and say, well, you know, it's in the same section here. ESV has it divided into sections. Well, those are helpful, but they're not inspired. You'll you'll know that the original manuscripts didn't didn't even separate words, let alone separate verses or sections. And so some would argue that because Jesus here starts speaking again in terms of, All flesh, or no human being would be saved. The sake of the elect, that he's speaking here in broader terms than just the Jews or even Jewish believers. But all flesh, all the elect, speaking in terms of humanity now, not just whoever happened to be in Jerusalem. And I think that has some merit to it, that Jesus is speaking of what his people will suffer. He's spoken of a specific case surrounding the sufferings of Jerusalem and now going back to speaking in broader terms. Certainly where we stand, well past the fall of Jerusalem, that's no longer current news, uh, we have to understand this, addressing us more in these general ways. Well, let's look then at what Jesus says. The last thing, the last event that he refers to here, he's referred to the abomination of desolation, the flight from Jerusalem, uh, the intense suffering. Then also again, he goes back to this whole possibility of people being deceived, the problem of false Christs. Now this applied certainly in Peter's day, John's day. It applies in our day as well. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christs as false messiahs and false prophets, maybe those who point to them, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, He's in the wilderness, which would have some plausibility, John the Baptist came from the wilderness, didn't he? Don't go out, Jesus said. And if they say, Look, He's here in the inner rooms, you know. It's just for the inner circle, for the initiated. Don't believe it. What's Jesus saying here? Again, he's already warned about this, and he's back talking about this, because this is so important. And that's why Jesus says, I've told you this beforehand. So when these things happen, the disciples will be forewarned, and therefore armed to stand against it. Don't believe it. These things will happen to lead lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That tells you how persuasive they are. If it were possible. God preserves His own. He will not let them be duped or deceived or led astray so far that that they wander off. They're His elect. He's redeemed them. He will keep them. He will preserve them. But they can be very persuasive so that they would deceive even the elect, if that were possible. It is impossible because of God's preserving grace. But if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. He's saying, don't be deceived. It's not going to be a hidden thing. He's out in the wilderness or he's back here in an inner room, you know, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you what he says, kind of like Joseph Smith looking in his bag and, and reciting out the, the Book of Mormon as somebody wrote it down, secret knowledge. No, look at what Jesus says. Verse 27, As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which is a difficult proverb. The King James renders it eagle. That's The word could mean eagle, but really it's incorrect because an eagle doesn't feed on carrion. Uh, vultures do, and the word can also refer to a vulture. Some have said, Well, will see, the Roman banners had eagles on it, but the word probably has reference to a vulture in the proverb, and it's difficult to know what the connection of the proverb is with what Jesus has been saying other than perhaps... The coming of the Son of Man will be as obvious to you as uh, that carcass on the side of the road is to the vultures. They'll see it. They know, they, it inevitably will attract them. Well, you will inevitably know it when the Son of Man returns. In other words, Jesus is saying his return will be a public thing, unmistakable. So when somebody says, well, he's out in the wilderness, you know, and I can I can lead you to him or I can tell you what he has to say, That's nonsense. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, it's like lightning. It lights up the sky. Uh, Everyone will know. Well, Jesus speaks here of some very definite incidents in history that have already taken place. But I think he also begins to open it up again uh, to those things that apply to us. But as we look at these words of our Lord, we need to be reminded that God is the God of history. That God is the Lord even of suffering and human pain. That he is the God who is merciful to us in our suffering. Often it isn't suffering that we learn most of the love and the compassion and the grace of God. We also learn, as the Lord of history, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will return in glory. Some said the, re- the return here had to do with his coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Whether that's what Jesus was getting at or not, we do know this, that Jesus is coming again in judgment on this world, judgment on his enemies, but also to receive home to him, his people. And if there's anything that this passage says to us today, it says to us, flee, flee from the judgment that is inevitably coming. Flee into the loving, saving arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do flee. We recognize that just as surely as those Roman armies approached and took Jerusalem, so you are returning in judgment on this rebellious, sinful world. And Lord, we do flee into the arms of Christ. We trust in Him. We recognize that He is that mountain. He is that rock in which is salvation, in whom we find refuge from the judgment that is to come. And Father, we thank You for Jesus. Thank You that He is our righteousness. Thank You that His blood is our cleansing. And Lord, we know that day is coming. Help us not to be deceived. Help us not even to begin to be led astray, but grounded in Your Word, led by Your Spirit, to anticipate the return, the true return in glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.